James chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, let's turn together there. James chapter 5. It's hard to believe that we are uh, very quickly working our way down to the end of this series here in James. Uh, but I hope that it has been an encouragement to, as much to you as it has, I know, to Pastor West and I as we've been studying through it. And we come here this morning in James chapter 5 to a passage of Scripture that really we've already been talking a lot about this morning through the songs that we've been singing. And it's this idea of trusting in the Lord's providence, of waiting upon Him, of enduring to the very end until the Lord returns. And there's an exhortation that James gives here to the believers of patient endurance uh, of what happens in the midst of this life as believers and how we are to wait and to trust upon the Lord. And that's something that's not always easy to do as human beings, especially as human beings that live in the 21st century. Most people are not given to the idea of patience. You sit too long at a red light after the light turns green and what happens? Horns start honking behind you. You go to a fast food restaurant, the person in front of you, uh, the, the cashier's taking a little bit too long, and, and before you know it, a fight has broken out uh, in the lobby of Wendy's because people just aren't patient. But patience is something that as Christians that we desperately need to wrap our minds around, and it's something that we desperately need to work towards, and it's something that is essential to our faith as Christians if we are to do what God has called us to do. So if you found your way there, I encourage you to stand with me if you're able. James chapter 5, we're going to be reading this morning verses 7 through 12. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patient, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And you can be seated this morning. James makes a switch here in his writing. He had been writing, and in the previous verses that we looked at last week, he had given this condemnation towards those uh, who were inside of the body of believers there, Uh, as he had done in previous places in this letter, challenging those who had professed the name of Christ, but yet were living their life in clear evidence of a lack of faith in Christ. And he condemned those who were using their riches for ill-gotten gains, who were getting their riches through corruption and by cheating people, and then was using that money to live luxuriously and to spend it all upon themselves. He was not condemning the riches themselves in the fact that God doesn't condemn that. He says that the love of money is the root of all evil, but God does bless some with money and riches in order, as Pastor West said earlier, there's the one who buys the rope, there's the one who um, holds the rope, and there's the one who uses the rope. And so God blesses some people with extraordinary resources that they're able to continue to further even more than the rest of us, the work of the kingdom. 
But there were those who were using these riches, and I want to call your attention there to verse 6, because this is where James's switch of mind comes. Look at verse 6. He says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So James is pointing out that there were those who were condemning the righteous, and the righteous is the one who was living uprightly, the one who was living according to the standard of God's Word, the one who was desiring to be obedient to God, and yet these wealthy men, in an effort to add more to their wealth, were condemning them by putting them to death, taking them to trial, telling them to steal even their resources in order that they might feed their own greedy lusts. So now James switches here because he's talked about those who were condemned, the righteous man. And he's writing here to these brothers and sisters in the faith, and he wants them to be encouraged because some of those to whom he was writing were enduring that persecution, were enduring that mistreatment, were enduring that condemnation. They were suffering for their faith. And we know that after the New Testament church was established, that it wasn't very long until the entirety of the New Testament church was suffering under persecution. We know Nero's persecution of the church was horrendous. We look back, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs and understand how tremendously devastating this persecution was to the church and how horrible and grotesque some of the things that were being done to these believers because they would not recant their faith. But I remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, that the persecution of the church is not just something that happened in the Bible. The persecution of the church and of Christians is not something that just happened hundreds of years ago. But in fact, statistics tell us that the church of Jesus Christ is more persecuted now than at any other time in human history. It's very easy for us to look around in our life and to not realize this or understand it. We gather here this morning without fear of being persecuted. Not at one point in time in this service has any of us ever thought, is somebody going to come through the door and take our life this morning for worshiping Jesus? We can go to work and you can put a Bible on your desk. You can hang a Bible verse on the wall and you don't have to worry about being fired in most cases. But you can live out your faith on a regular basis in the city square. They went downtown yesterday, preached the gospel in the open air. No fear of being arrested, no fear of being persecuted. But there are brothers and sisters all around the world today for whom that is not the case. There are godly Christians this morning gathered in secret in places all around the world, in basements, in barns, out in the wood in caves, because if they're caught, they will be killed. Their families will be killed. They will be persecuted. Their resources, their livelihoods will be taken. And it's to those whom James writes here, those who are suffering for their faith. But brothers and sisters, he also writes to us this morning because just because we have lived in a time of no persecution here in this country does not mean that it will always be that way. The chances are extremely likely with each passing day that persecution will come to the church in America. And if it does, we need to be prepared. Preparing for persecution is not something you just do at the drop of a hat. Preparing for persecution is something that you do throughout the entirety of your Christian life as you study the Word of God and you allow it to change you and you learn and grow into the things which God has called us to do. So the first thing that I want you to notice in verses 7 through 9 is the elements of patience. 
You're going to see that word patience used here in this passage four different times, because this is really what James is calling them to. He's calling them to patience, to endurance, to long-suffering. The Christian life and the things that we go through is not something that can be a short-lived kind of life. We have to prepare for the long run. We have to prepare for years sometimes of enduring what the wicked may bring against us. James is calling them to endure the oppression by those who were the wicked rich. He's calling them to patience when it seems like the Lord is delayed and it seems like what they are encountering and what they are struggling through continues to just go on and on. But brothers and sisters, may I remind you this morning that persecution is not something unusual for the church of Jesus Christ. It's not something that should take us by surprise. My fear is for the American church is that because persecution has been so long removed from the church in America that people assume that persecution is a shameful thing for the church to endure. But in fact, it's just the opposite. Persecution is a joyful thing for the church to endure because it lines us up with Christ. Christ suffered. He was persecuted. And so we may and will be as well. Remember what Jesus said. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He says you're going to have trouble in this life. Jesus said, what? If they hated me, they will hate you also. It's funny to me how so often, so many times, Christians, uh, especially in the last 30 or 40 years, we've seen a very big movement of this. Christians are so hard fighting to try to become friends with the world. They want to develop a kind of Christianity that the world is okay with and that the world likes. But Jesus has told us from the very beginning, he says, if they hated me, they will hate you. You cannot have friendship with the world and friendship with God. So James is writing to these brothers and sisters to encourage them to keep looking up. Don't fear what's going on around you, but keep looking up because the Lord knows what you're going through. The Lord has told you that this would come. And notice what he says. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren. We've talked about this word over and over again in the book of James because he uses it so often. But here in this passage, he uses it four different times. This is really a, a heart cry of James to these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's reminding them over and over. He uses that word brethren to signify the fact that they are in Christ, the fact that they're in Christ together, and the fact that he loves them dearly. He, he, it's as if he could, if he could huddle them together, if he could wrap his arms around them and offer that word of encouragement. I'm sure many of us have been in a situation before where we were talking to someone and the closeness and the intimacy of the moment demands that we just put our arm around them and say, you know, it's going to be okay. The Lord's going to carry you through this. And it's as if James is wrapping his arms around these brothers and sisters and saying, therefore, be patient, brethren. Be long-suffering. Endure. Don't, don't let everything get overwhelmed to you, but endure and keep looking up because God is going to make all things right. 
He says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, this coming of the Lord could, could reference a couple of different things for these believers. Commentators point out the fact that James could be referring to the coming of the Lord in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He's writing this letter about 10 to 15 years before that event would occur. The Lord was going to come in judgment on Jerusalem. And in his coming in judgment on Jerusalem, he was really doing a couple of things. He was cementing the fact of Jesus's Messiahship, that he was the Messiah. He was putting an end to the Jewish traditions and the Jewish ceremonial system. When the temple was destroyed, there were no more sacrifices offered. There there could not be a sacrificial system anymore because it had been destroyed. And it was a very clear demonstration of the fact that that was done away with and what was new has come, and that is Christ. And in the midst of that persecution, it allowed the, the, the Jewish Christians to be shoved out into the world so that the gospel would begin to spread. It also could refer to the coming of the Lord in some of their own deaths. Some of them would not endure to the final, to the second coming of the Lord. Some of them, and many of them, obviously, because the Lord has not returned a second time, would die in their faith. And then James also could be referring in again just this hope that the Christians had of the second coming of the Lord. As you read through the Scriptures, you're going to find that all the Christians throughout the Scriptures, they believed in the promise of the Lord's second coming, and they believed and hoped that it would occur in their generation, just as we do in ours. You hear people say all the time, you know, well, we're living in the last days. That's very true. It was the last days after Jesus ascended into heaven, and he told his disciples to go and preach the gospel. That was the last days, and we're still living in them. Every generation, I would encourage you sometime to do some research, every generation since the ascension of Jesus had assumed that they would see the return of the Lord in their generation. But the Lord has not returned yet. And what does that mean? That means that we must be patient. This is what the Lord is calling these believers to, this patience, because the Lord will make all things right. This coming, this second coming of the Lord, whether it be in their death, whether it be in the destruction of Jerusalem, whether it be in the Lord's second coming, when the Lord does what is good, He will make all things right for them. All the mistreatment that they have been experiencing, all the persecution that they have endured, it will all be made right. Paul said, Paul, who had endured many things for the cause of Christ, he had been shipwrecked, he had been beaten, he had been imprisoned, he had been slandered and ridiculed. And he says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but what also to all of those who have loved his appearing. What are we doing? We're looking for and longing for the return of Christ because we know that all things will be made right. No matter what you have experienced in this life, no matter what you have walked through, no matter what has happened to you on that day, whether you see the Lord in glory when you die on this earth or whether he comes back in the clouds from heaven, on that day, none of it will matter. You will not look back and say, oh, Lord, I'm so glad you're here, but let me remind you of what happened to me 20 years ago. It will all cease to be relevant anymore because the one who will make all things right has come. You've often heard the story of 
of the little boy who was being bullied and one day say he decided he was going to, you know, stand up for himself. You know, so he, he walks up and as he goes, he's, he's there and he's, he's battling and confronting these boys that have been picking on him. And, you know, and all of a sudden they just look at him and they turn around and they just run off. And he thinks, well, man, he's like, I should have done this sooner. And then he turns around and who's standing behind him? His dad, right? Because daddy came to make all things right. And we can stand up to the things in this world and we have hope because we know that he is one day coming to make all things right. Peter said this, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We cannot escape trials in this life. This world is tainted by sin, and just because we have experienced forgiveness of sin does not mean that we escape the results and the consequences of sin in this life. We will get sick. We will suffer. We will be made fun of. We will be lied about. We will be slandered. We will be persecuted. But God is using all those things to shape us and to grow us into who he desires for us to be. As Peter points out here, when a jeweler is making gold pure, he puts it on the fire and heats it up and melts it and continues to heat it until all the impurities rise to the top and can be scraped off. It has to go through the testing and the trial by fire. And so do we. But in the end, it will all be worth it. I notice what James points out here. He, he tells them to be patient, but he gives an example here. He gives an illustration. He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. Now, in the region of Jerusalem and Palestine where James is writing, there were really only two seasons of the year. You have a wet season from October to April, and you have a dry season from May to September. And during that dry season, most of the time, there really is just no rain at all. The sun is scorching down, the ground hardens, and it is almost impenetrable because it's just so dry. So for those who are farming us in this region, this harvest depends on the fact that there is an early rain and a latter rain. That early rain would occur sometime from October to December. And so the farmer would be waiting. He's looking up on the fields. The field is hard. It's dry. There's nothing he can do. He can't plant seeds. He can't turn the ground over because it's so rock hard. But when that early rain comes, it allows the ground to be broken and allows the seeds to be planted. And it allows them to begin to grow. And then towards the end of that season, there was the latter rain, which would occur sometime in March or April, right before the dry season. And without that rain, that latter rain, the crops would not mature. So without the rain, there was no harvest. Without the rain, without those things, there would be no produce of the soil. But he says the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient until it gets the early and the late rains. The farmer knew what was necessary. He knew what he had to do. So when the first rain would come, he would begin to work the field. 
He would go out and he would turn the soil over and he would put the crops in. Now, nowadays, the, the farmers really aren't as, as dependent or as uh, on this aspect of, of, uh, of the rain coming as they would have been in this time. Why? Because now if you're a farmer and it doesn't rain, you just irrigate your fields. You've got a pump set in a pond somewhere, you turn it on and it sprays all the fields and, and your fields are irrigated. But the farmer in James's day would not have had that ability. He had to be patient. He had to wait. And he knew the work that was involved. He knew that the rain would come. He trusted and he was patient that the rain would come. And when it did come, he would plant the fields and then he would wait on that latter rain. And he would wait. There was nothing else he could do about it, but he knew what the end result would be. If he put in all the work that was necessary along the way, and then he was patient, he knew that in the end, he would receive the reward of his work. Matthew Henry said this, "'Consider him that waits for a crop of corn, and will you not wait for a crown of glory?' If you should be called to wait a little longer than the farmer does, is it not something proportionally greater and infinitely more worth your waiting for? The farmer has to wait a year for his crops to grow. He has to wait for the growing season to be over until he receives his reward. And as Matthew Henry points out now, brothers and sisters, we're not waiting for a crop of corn. We're waiting for that crown of glory. And if we understand what God has set aside for us, is it not worth the waiting? Is it not worth the wait to just endure for a little longer? The farmer waits. He waits for the promise. He waits for that blessing. So James says, this is how you should be as believers. You put the work in, you do what you're called to do, but there's an element of the Christian life which is about being patient until the Lord does His work. As human beings, we don't like being patient. We want to see things happen instantly. We are an immediate gratification society. We want things to happen now, and we want them to happen yesterday. We want it as quick as we can get it. But brothers and sisters, we have to understand what patience is. The Christian life is not something that happens in a moment. And when difficulty comes, it's not often over in a moment. It's often a time of endurance and patience and waiting and trusting. The farmer had to trust the goodness of the Lord to send the rain. The farmer had to trust the providence of God that he would send the rain in due time that the harvest would grow. But he trusted and he waited patiently. And he said, because he waited, he got the precious produce of the soil. Waiting for the precious produce. But let me be clear this morning, this waiting is not idle. God is not calling us just to sit around and just wait on him. The farmer did not just sit and wait. He was planting. He was plowing. He was preserving all of this in a means to the harvest. But he continued because he knew what the end would be. So to us as believers, we are called to see the trials of this life as the preparation and the process that God has used to conform us to Christ. These are all elements of patience. Look at verse 8. 
You too be patient. As who? You too be patient as the farmer, waiting, trusting, enduring. But notice what he says there in verse 8. He says, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Matthew Henry, whom again, I'm going to quote because I love him so much. He says, because this is a lesson Christians must learn, though ever so hard or difficult to them, it is repeated here. You would think James had just said, therefore, be patient, brethren, in verse 7. Why would he say it again? You too be patient here in just the next part of this letter. Just the next sentence. He, he says to them again, you too be patient. Because this is a hard lesson for us to learn sometimes, but it's one that is necessary for us, and we must be reminded of it. But he says to strengthen your hearts. That idea of strengthening is to fix firmly or to be steadfast. And really what he means by this is to not be double-minded. Don't waver back and forth, but strengthen your hearts, set your heart on God, set your heart on Christ and who he is. James has already rebuked those who would be one who doubts. In the opening chapter of this book, he says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. We don't want to have a Christian life that is just blown one direction or the other. We want a Christian life that is established and secure and true. And so James says we must strengthen our hearts. We must fix ourselves firmly on Christ. Now, we are stable in Christ. James here is not pointing to the idea of our stability in Christ as far as our salvation is concerned, but oftentimes our hearts can easily be pulled to and fro. Human beings are emotional creatures, and so we can easily be pulled one direction or the other. And so we need to be set strong again. We need to be established now, that word strengthen, what is it called to mind? When you see strength in your hearts, it's the idea of, of strength, right, of, of muscular work. Now, how does one become muscularly strong? You don't just wake up one morning and have muscles. You have to do something. You have to go to the gym. You have to have a laborious job. You have to do something that causes you to work those muscles in order for you to gain strength. And if we're going to fix our hearts upon Christ, we must be relying upon Him, spending time in His Word, spending time in prayer, calling ourselves to the attention of what God has set before us in order to strengthen our hearts for that moment. We can't just expect that we can live a lazy Christian life, and then when difficulty happens, expect that we're going to be okay. We have to strengthen our hearts. John Gill, in his commentary, pointed out that this is often done through the Word and through the ordinances. God strengthens our hearts. We are strengthened in our hearts by reading God's Word and through the ordinances. So that's the idea of, of, of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are the two ordinances that the church has. Why do we have communion every week? Because God does something for us in the midst of that time together at the table. Every week we are called to confront our sinfulness and to remember that we are deserving of death and hell and the grave. But every week we are called to remember that God, in His mercy and grace, sent His Son to come and to take our punishment 
upon himself. And every week we're reminded that Christ has risen from the dead and that he is our hope and our strength. Every week we're called to remember those things. That's why the front of this table says, this do in remembrance of me. We are called to remember what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are renewed afresh every week as we come to the table and reminded that God is strengthening our hearts through that time together. He says, strengthen your hearts. And again, notice as he repeats this same thing again, for the coming of the Lord is near. The word that James uses here is the word perusia, which means appearance. It talks about the sudden arrival. The coming of the Lord is near. One day the Lord is coming again. This is referenced over and over in the Scriptures, not so that we spend our lives looking every moment, but so that we spend our lives preparing for that moment, that we're ready at any moment for the Lord's return. The Lord is not calling us to sit at home with binoculars looking towards the sky and waiting for the clouds to burst open. He tells us this to be prepared for his awakening so that it drives us to this all-consuming passion of doing the work of the kingdom until he comes. Brothers and sisters, I don't care where your eschatology lands as long as your eschatology encourages you to be faithful in the work of the gospel until Jesus returns. That's what it's all about. Working for the king until he returns. Now, when's it going to happen? Well, Jesus has already told us what no man knows the day or the hour, not even the son, only the father in heaven knows the day or the hour. So what good is it for people to sit around and contemplate when Jesus is going to return? We've had no shortage of people over the last 40 or 50 years in our generation who have said, oh, well, you know, all the signs point to Jesus. Uh, how many of you in this room, some of you are too young to remember, but there was a book, 88 Reasons Christ Will Return in 1988. And he didn't return. So he recalculated and came out with a new book, 89 Reasons Christ Will Return in 1989. Over and over again, people point to this, but we don't know the day or the hour. And it's not for us to worry about. Our thing to worry about is knowing that Jesus is coming, he will return, and the work of the kingdom is at hand. How is it going to happen? The Scripture tells us it's going to happen suddenly. No one will know when, and it will happen so suddenly. And so what should our mindset be? Our mindset should be one of watchful, knowing that it's coming, but that we're continuing to do the work of the kingdom. Why does James tell him here, to strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near? He's encouraging his brothers and sisters, be patient in endurance and trial. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord will return again. And what? Make all things right. Just do what God has called you to do, even in the midst of trial and difficulty. We can look at countless numbers of stories of persecuted believers who, when they were persecuted, when they were arrested and thrown in prison, they did not cease to proclaim the gospel. Look at Paul, Peter. When they were thrown in jail, what did they do? They preached the gospel. When people were being burned at the stake, what did they do? They preached the gospel. When the Christians were being thrown to the lions in Rome, what did they do? They preached the gospel until they were consumed by the lions. He says, endure Strengthen your hearts because the Lord is coming. Do what he's called you to do. 
It's an element of patience. Now look at verse 9. This is the last element of patience. He says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now what does he mean, do not complain, brethren, against one another? You know, the worst testimony or the worst response to a trial or a testing is bitterness or complaining. And this is what he's encouraging them against. He says, when you encourage trials and tribulations, don't become bitter, don't begin to complain, and especially don't do it towards one another. What does he mean by that? Well, he means by someone in this light saying, well, Why am I going through this, Lord? And brother so-and-so over there, they're not having it as bad as I am. Well, why would I have to endure this? And and sister so-and-so, man, she never has any problems in her life, Lord. Why, Why are you doing this to me? Now, as Christians, and I think especially as Reformed believers, I think we exhibit a natural hesitancy to complain against God vocally out loud. But oftentimes we can be guilty of subtle complaining. Sometimes that's out wild with maybe just a couple of people. How are things going? Well, you know, it is the Lord's good. The Lord's good, but. You know, the Lord's faithful, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been a little hard. Now, I'm not saying that we can't share prayer requests, but the Lord knows our heart. And sometimes we're not intending to share a prayer request and ask somebody to pray for us as much as we are wanting somebody to feel sorry for us. And if we're just wanting somebody to feel sorry for us, what we're doing is complaining about the Lord's work in our life. But there's also inward complaining. The status of our heart is more often so clearly revealed, not in what we say outwardly, but what we think inwardly. Because we're always more honest with the things that we say on the inside than what we say on the outside, which is the reason why Jesus forbade not only the actual act of adultery, but he said, if anyone looks with lust, he's committed adultery already in his heart, because God sees the intentions of our heart. And the Scripture says that we will give an account for every idle word spoken. So James says, don't complain. Don't complain against one another. He says, why? So that you yourselves may not be judged. As Christians, we will not stand before the judgment of God in the sense of whether we go to heaven or hell. But we will stand before the judgment seat of God and be judged on our works. Our works will be laid before God. And the fire of His judgment will be laid before them, and the the straw and the sticks will be burned away, and what is good will be left behind. So He's reminding them, God sees all, God knows all. And he says, so make sure you're living in such a way that at that great day of judgment before God, that you will not be found lacking, that you will not be found ashamed of the attitudes of your heart and the way that you lived your life. Brothers and sisters, consider it in this way. We are given a great opportunity in this life to live our lives for the glory of God. 
despite whether that be in midst of glory and celebration or whether that be in the midst of trial and difficulty. We have to make a decision. Are we going to live our lives to the glory of God in all seasons of our life? I've shared with you before, I love reading biographies. And what is it that makes a biography good? Well, it's, a biography is good when you read the story of someone who endured something. And you see the element of their faith lived out. We love to read stories like that. We love to read stories of the Apostle Paul. We love to read stories of great missionaries. I think of Adoniram Judson, who, who lost three wives on the mission field, numerous children, but lived his life for the glory of God. I think of Charles Spurgeon, who through the entirety of his life dealt with severe physical illness with gout and other things that caused him physical problems, dealt with mental illness and depression throughout the entirety of his ministry. And many people say that's what exactly killed him, was he was so depressed after he stood up against the liberals there in, in England, but he endured to the end. He allowed those things not to encourage him to be disapproving of God or to criticize God, but he allowed God to use those things in his life to bring glory and honor to him. So we need to look at our lives in the midst of what we're going through and don't say, Lord, why me? But say, Lord, how can I use this to glorify your name? Lord, how are you going to use this to bring glory and honor to you? He says, because the judge is coming, he's soon at the door. Again, he's reminding them, as he said in every verse, the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming soon. God is returning. Prepare yourselves, endure, wait on the coming of the Lord. Those are the elements of patience. I want you to notice in verses 10 and 11, the examples of patience. He says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. In the midst of difficulty and trial, it can be a great comfort to know that we're not alone in the fight. There have been others who have endured far worse things than we find ourselves in. Several years ago, we had gone through a rough season at the church, and I had a dear pastor friend of mine who had offered some help and advice. And as we walked through that season, I had really kind of found myself in a place where, you know, I was, I was really kind of having a pity party for myself. And so I wrote to this pastor, and I explained to him all that was going on. And, and really what I hoped was he was going to write back and say, you know, well, brother, you know, everything's going to be okay. You know, just, you know, you're, it's okay. You're, you're good. But in fact, what he wrote back was basically along the lines of, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You know, people have gone through far worse than this. You, you've not had your life threatened. You know, your livelihood hasn't been taken away. He said the, the prophets and the Puritans all have suffered far worse than what you're going through. It's not what I wanted to hear, but it was what I needed to hear. And so when we look back and we see the providence and the protection and the grace and the mercy of God and the lives of believers have endured far worse than we could ever think to endure, we're encouraged by that because we know that in the midst of our situation, God can carry us through. 
He's not going to leave us. His word says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As much as we love our loved ones, our husbands, our wives, our children, you know what? They're human beings, and at times they're going to let us down. As much as we love them and as much as they love us. But we have one who is closer than a brother, who will never leave us, never forsake us. Now, the prophets spoke on the name of the Lord. And you look back and you see all that the prophets suffered through, all that they endured, the ridicule, the slander, the persecution, all that they endured for the Lord. And they didn't endure it for their own words, right? It would be one thing for somebody to stand up and say something of their own account and have to suffer the consequences for it. The prophets were suffering the consequences, not of what they were saying, but what the Lord was saying through them. But they weren't discouraged. They endured to the end. They were patient. They trusted. They waited. Why? Because they knew what God had called them to do. And their lives are a testimony and encouragement to our souls. If these great men of God as the prophets suffered as such, we should expect the same. And it is no shameful thing to be so numbered together as with them. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Verse 11 says, he says, we count those blessed who endured. To quote John Gill again on this passage, he says, affliction with courage, constancy, and patience. He says, they hold out to the end, for such shall be saved. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are happy now and will be so hereafter. It seems such, such a counterintuitive thing to say that those who suffer for the cross of Christ are blessed. The world would look at that and say, that's crazy. How could you suffer persecution? How could your spouse be killed in front of you? How could your children be kidnapped away? How could you lose everything and still look at that and say that they're blessed? Because it's not according to earthly terms. He says those who have endured are blessed. And who does he point to? Perhaps the greatest example in all scriptures is this. He points to Job. You remember this, Satan comes to God, and what does God say? Have you considered my servant Job? There's so much. We, we could pause right here and just preach an entire message on the providence of God in the midst of difficulty in the book of Job. But ultimately to understand that nothing happened to Job outside of God's permission and will. And Job had everything taken from him. He had his family his crops, his livelihood, everything was taken away from him. But he did not curse God. Now, were there times in Job's life where emotions got the best of him? Yes. Were there times where he was questioning what is going on? Why is this happening? Yes. But the evidence of Job's life was at the very end, he endured all of it. He endured every single thing that came upon him. And he did not curse God. And this is why James uses this here. He says, you've heard of the endurance of Job, and you've seen the outcome of the Lord's 
purposes or the Lord's dealings. So what is he doing? What is the outcome? of That means the Lord's end goal, his purposes. What is God doing? Well, remember what he did in the life of Job? Job chapter 42 tells us, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. The Lord paid back to Job more than he ever had before. And brothers and sisters, what does the Lord tell us? That if we endure patiently, we will be blessed. Why? Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That verse has repeated itself over and over for the past several books that we've gone through. Why? Because of how important it is for us as believers to understand and to wrap our minds around. Write this verse down and pin it on your refrigerator. Tape it on the dashboard of your car. Why? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What are all things? That's everything. That's when things are good, when your job is great and you've got a raise, when your kids are healthy, when the economy's booming. That's all things. But it's also all things when you get a cancer diagnosis. It's also all things when you lose your job. It's also all things when the stock market crashes and your 401k is wiped out. He says he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Nothing in this world happens by chance or by luck, but by the divine providence of God. He says, those who are blessed endured. You've seen Job. You've seen his endurance. You've seen his patience. You've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, the Lord working his purposes in the life of Job. You've seen it in your own life. He says that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Aren't you glad this morning that the Lord is full of compassion? The word that's used here actually means that the Lord is full of bowels. The word bowel was used in the Bible in, the, in James's day to signify the seat of emotion, right? They, they, they didn't know what else to call it, but they knew that in an emotional situation, you felt it in here. You felt it in the core of your being and where your bowels were. So the word of compassion meant your bowels. You would feel it here because that's the only thing that they could allude it to. So when James says here he's full of compassion, it means that he is overwhelming with compassion. He's full of bowels. It's the seat of compassion and is merciful. And in the midst of trial and difficulty, is that not what we need to know the most? That the Lord is compassionate with us and for us, that he knows what we're going through. And when we go to him, he's not going to ridicule us or cast us off, but he's going to wrap his arms around us and show us his compassion and his mercy. Those are the examples of patience. Finally, I want you to notice verse 12 as we close the evidence of patience. Now this word kind of, this verse kind of sticks out here. He says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now James here again uses that word brethren. 
We know he's writing to those who are saved, those who are believers in Christ. And he says, but above all, do not swear. So he's, he's just walked them through this process of patient endurance, of long suffering against persecution, of enduring against those who would maliciously and wrongly persecute them. Now, when James uses the word swear here, he's not talking about profanity. They're not using the word swear as we would use it today. He's talking about the idea of taking an oath. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, where it is the throne of God, or by the earth. Now, God does not entirely forbid the swearing of all oaths. You can go to court today, and if the judge asks you to raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you can do that. And in fact, in the Old Testament, God would call people to make certain oaths to them, to swear by the Lord. What James is rebuking here is the idea of rash or slight oaths. And to understand what this means, we have to understand a little bit about Jewish culture. Jewish people at this time were profoundly known for just swearing on an instant, making an oath on an instant. Now, the Jews believed that if you swore by heaven, that means in the name of God, then that oath was a binding oath. If you said, I swear to you by God, or I swear to you by heaven, that I will do this thing, they believed that that was a binding oath. But now the Jews also believed that if you did not swear by heaven, but you swore by something on the earth, that that was not a binding oath. So maybe you would say, I I swear on the life of my children, or I make an oath to you on the life of my parents. They didn't believe that that was a binding oath. So it became a skill among the Jewish people to figure out how you could make an oath that was not binding so that you did not have to actually keep it. So what did that do with the idea of oath-keeping? Well, it really became a mockery because there was no trustfulness in an oath. If you can't take a man at his word, then you can't trust him at all. And any oath that is made still profanes God's name and if it's not kept. In fact, the Jewish rabbis used to say, "'Accustom not thyself to vows, for sooner or later they will swear false oaths.'" You get so used to telling a lie, you get so used to swearing a false oath that no one will trust what you have to say. But James says your yes is to be yes and your no, no, that you may not fall under judgment. Now, now what does this have to do with persecution? What does this have to do with enduring to the end? Well, because this had been such a continued practice in the Jewish tradition, it's no doubt that some of those even inside the church had picked up this practice or continued this practice. They weren't going to swear by heaven because they knew that was a binding oath, but if they could swear by things on the earth, that was not a binding oath. Well, how would that come into play? Well, you think about it. Someone comes and they're trying to persecute you in such way, you could make an oath or a promise to do something knowing you're not going to keep it, but it was an oath nonetheless because you knew that it might get you out of trouble. to escape, to not have to suffer what you're going through. 
But James is reminding them that whether you swear by heaven or swear by the earth or with any other kind of oath, it doesn't matter what you swear it by, you swear it before God who sees all things. You make a promise, it's before God whether you include God in the sentence or not. So he says your yes is to be yes and your no, no, that you may not fall under judgment. He's telling them, brothers and sisters, be known by your truthfulness and your trustworthiness, not by your swearing of many oaths. Part of this endurance was going to say, endure to the end, endure through all of these things, and be upright in all things to the end of it. Don't try to escape by the swearing of oaths. Don't try to escape by, by one way or the other, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. There are the elements of patience, waiting for the coming of the Lord, as the farmer does, waiting for his precious produce. We so too wait for the promises of God. We strengthen our hearts, trusting in him, and we avoid complaining, murmuring, questioning what God is doing. We look at the examples of patience in the prophets, in Job, in the generations of believers that have gone before and we ensure that our lives are lives that are characterized by trustworthiness. And in all these things, we can be people who are patiently enduring until the return of our King. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I dare say there's none in this room who could say that we are perfect at this. We need your help. Lord, I thank you that for several centuries you have proven yourself in the New Testament church to be faithful to those who have endured persecution. And Lord, we thank you that the Lord has, that, that this country has known a reprise from severe persecution for many years. The Lord, we're able to worship here in such freedom. But Lord, may we not take that for granted. And may our hearts be prepared for what could come. Lord, we don't long for persecution. We're not asking for it. But Lord, we ask that you would prepare us in case it does come. Prepare our hearts to trust in you. Prepare our hearts to endure. Prepare our hearts to be patient, that our lives may be a testimony to those who would come after us, that our lives may be evidenced of the goodness of Jesus. Lord, help us to trust you in all things. Tomorrow morning when we get a phone call, when we hear about something that's happened and we feel overwhelmed, we feel discouraged, we feel as if everything is falling down around us, Lord, help us to know and trust that you are working and that you're doing all things for our good. Help us to be a patient people, enduring to the end. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.